This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Joe Prendergast on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. Nice to be with you from the Geraldton studio on what is a pretty mild day here today in comparison to what we've been having over the past few days temperature-wise. We will have all the latest weather details for you at about 12.30 today. A busy program, a lot to get through. It sounds like a Dandarigan farm worker is lucky to still have his leg after he was caught in a potato harvester yesterday. Lyle, one of the workers, was standing on the outside of where Josh was and Josh was on the inside um, and he's, he must have seen him go down and obviously yell and he turned that tractor off straight away and if he hadn't have done that, it would have been a, like so much worse than what it was. Like His quick thinking saved his leg and possibly his life. You'll hear more from Samantha, who is the farm worker Josh's partner, after 12.30 today. And I wonder if you've ever taken a trip along the Barclay Highway. It's the only bitumen road joining the Northern Territory and Queensland. But it's been closed a few times over the past month due to large bushfires. And that is creating problems for the East Kimberley bring you more about that soon but we'll kick off the program with some international grain news there's been reports overnight that Russia and China have signed their largest grain supply contract now the deal is worth a whopping US 27 or 25.7 billion dollars and that's for 70 million tons of grain so 25.7 billion dollars for 70 million tonnes of grain. China has been the largest buyer of Australian wheat for the past couple of years. So what does this Russia-China deal mean for our international export markets? Well, Andrew Whitelaw is a grains analyst with Episode 3 and he reckons while it sounds like big numbers in this deal, China will still need grain from right across the world, including Australia. It's significant for one thing, and I think the one thing it's significant for is that, you know, that increasing relationship between these sort of states, you know, Russia and China, North Korea and China, and uh, I guess it's, it's, it's a sign of the changing sort of geopolitical landscape around the world. You know, Russia has sort of, in the last couple of years, really reverted to being a bit of a pariah state and uh, it looks like the relationship with China is going to become more and more important for them. Does it still leave plenty of room for other countries to export grain into China though? I mean it sounds like a lot of grain but in the scheme of it is it? Look on on first perspective 70 million tonnes that's a lot of grain however you start to look into it you know it's over 12 years you know, if, if it's just spread evenly over those 12 years, you know, you're talking 5.8 million tonnes, still sounds like a lot, but it's not that much in the grand scheme of things. Because China, China in recent years, the import volumes of grains have been you know, nothing short of astronomical. So if we look at the period, say, 2016 to 2020, you know, it didn't even get above 15 million tonnes of wheat, barley and corn combined. 
But in recent years, you know, we've seen 2021, you know, over 50 million tonnes. Last year was, you know, about 35 million tonnes. So these are big volumes of, of grain that they have as demand. Mm. And that's, and you know, we would expect that potentially continue to increase as their their wealth increases and they um, and more of their pigs go in, for instance, go into more intensive, more professional outfits, less swill feeding. So five and let's call it five and a half, five point eight million tons a year. It is big, but it is only a, a relatively short percentage of the overall overall sort of volume that's going into there. And we've been very good in the last couple of years. We've had no barley, obviously, uh, but we will probably be the the biggest uh, China will be our biggest customer for barley next year, probably. Uh, but we have been the biggest, uh, you know, seller of wheat into there. They've been buying astronomical volumes of Australian wheat. I think the the latest figures I could see it was six point four million tons of Australian wheat uh, for October twenty two to September twenty three went into China. So it's a pretty big market. But then. There was also a, a significant trade deal done between the US and China buying US wheat. So how secure is that footing of, of having access into the Chinese market for Australian wheat growers? Look, I think we, the door is open and I think that's the important thing. Obviously, in the last couple of years, the door wasn't open for barley, so mm. we couldn't get any barley in there. Uh, regardless of what price we were, we were never going to get into any barley into there. But I think one thing that people have to remember, and this is the key thing, grain is grain, and it's going to be, as long as it meets the quality requirements, you know, if somebody wants milling wheat of a certain protein, they're then going to look at the price. And the price is going to be the key determinant in any commodity trade. In the last couple of years, Australian grain has been cheap. Australian wheat has been cheap. We've had some big crops. We've been cheap. And that is attractive for Chinese buyers. At the moment, yep, there's been a couple of large purchases of U.S. wheat by China. And the reason was because it was cheap. And at the moment, Russian wheat is cheap. So there's a bit of a, a, a pattern emerging that people buy grain when it's cheap. <laughs> well, the wheat price in the U.S., I think it's at its lowest level for the past two years at the moment. So would we be being pushed down as well or are we still comparatively cheap to the US? Look, we have gone and we've flipped the, 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 the sort of the picture, so to speak. In the last couple of years, with those big, massive bumper crops, we were pretty much the cheapest grain in the world, cheapest wheat in the world, cheapest barley definitely in the world and cheapest canola. Uh, but as things have got a little bit drier on the East Coast, and, and parts of WA as well, uh, we have seen that we have moved back towards having a premium versus a lot of the world. You know, we will still sell all the grain that we have, uh, but there's other countries that are uh, more competitive on price to buy from. And with um, farmers listening to this who've probably got the header in the paddock as we speak, what signals can they take out of this movement that we're seeing for what it might mean for the value of their wheat over the next six months or so? Look, I think we're in a, if we look at the grain market just now, yeah, we've still got a lot of volatility or a lot of volatile actions in the marketplace. You know, first of all, we still got the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. So that has a, the potential to always be causing major hiccups. Russia and Ukraine are still exploring grain. 
So that is kind of on a global market stymieing things. But, you know, if we look at it in the wider picture, if we look at the main exporters of grain, which are basically eight countries which export the lion's share of all of our wheat around the world, if we look at their stocks, including our own, they're actually pretty tight. So we've pretty much got the lowest levels of stocks globally within the exporters than we've had in about 12 years or maybe more. So it doesn't take much when things are tight for things to really go off. But what I would say is markets are very odd at the moment. We've seen sort of globally tight stocks, but at the same time, prices have come down. Uh, we've also got a deteriorating global situation in terms of the economy. So I think look, what I'd be saying is if you're a farmer and you're, and you're harvesting, I'd be concentrating on the harvesting just now. Uh, prices in Australia relative to, say, wheat futures or, or physically around the world are pretty strong. You just got to look at it and see, is it profitable for you to sell? And, uh, and then go from there. Andrew Whitelaw, he's a grains analyst with episode three, 14 past 12, and harvest has kicked off right around the state, albeit with a bit less fanfare than last year's bumper season. How are you going at your place? Is the crop meeting your expectations? Maybe you've had a nice surprise. I hope so. Let me know on text 0448 922 Receivals have been ticking in and Tara Delangraf took a look at the latest delivery numbers. In September, the Grains Industry Association of WA predicted a state harvest of 15.5 million tonne. That's down 11 million tonne, or almost 40%, on last year's record haul of 26 million tonne. Now, while not all West Australian grain will go through the cooperative bulk handling system, with some being kept on farm as seed, some delivered to other bulk handlers, and some sold privately, majority does get delivered to CBH. In the Quinana North Zone, Alan Walker from CBH says tonnage will be down significantly, and they've had almost every commodity type delivered already. Our first deliveries were actually barley and generally it is canola but we got um, first loads into training of barley and then we started seeing some canola through the north of the zone. Uh, I've got some oats and some lupins in this week as well and our first loads were wheat over the last couple of days so we've got pretty much everything coming in um, all together at the moment. And what's the quality of that first grain looking like? Uh, it's been a little bit hit and miss so there is there has been a fair bit of malt barley coming in certain areas and then you don't have to go too far away for the quality to drop off and go into the feed stacks. But the yeah, majority majority barley has been, been feed, but there is a, a bit of malt around as well. And the uh, minimal loads of wheat we've got in the moment have been all over the place as well. There's been high protein, high screenings, and then um, you get a few loads in with some low protein as well. So, yes, it's um, obviously too early to tell what the season's going to bring, but at the moment, it was looking like high protein, high quality for the majority of it. So looking overall, Alan, what's the, the total you are expecting tonnage-wise for, for the season? So we received $6.2 million for the Quinana North Zone last year. And at, at the moment, um, after all the grow meetings, we've um, got an estimate of about $2.5 million at the moment. So a fair, fair um, way down on last season. Mm. And, um, yeah, so it'll take us another another week or two to get on top of what all the yields are going. But 
yeah, at the moment about 2.5 million. So I think it's going to be um, a quick a quick harvest. We'll um, CBH will do we'll do our best to open up for the hours that the growers want, and um, yeah, try and get the get the season out of the way as quick as we can because we know what the growers are in the same boat. They just want to get get this season out of the way and um, and start thinking about next year. So yeah, we'll do our do our best to get their crop off as quick as we can. Further north in the Geraldton port zone, where everything kicked off for season 2023-24, just over 200,000 tonne has been delivered and things are tracking about three weeks ahead. In the Quinana south zone, just over 19,000 tonne has been received so far and in the state's southeast, Esperance port zone general manager Paul Channon says tonnages will also be significantly down. So we've only received about 50,000 tonnes so far into the system most of it's been barley and feed barley of that so there'll be an interesting harvest so there's a lot of variation i think we'll see definitely within the esperant zone and if you look at you know out towards Bogot, looks pretty good out that way and then with the tight sort of finish uh, out through the lakes i think you will see yeah a lot of variation through the crop when you've done your, your segregation planning, have you sort of had to factor in that, that maybe those crops will be of, of lesser quality given the, the tight finish? Yeah, I think so. It's like for us now, it's just watching the hat samples come in. Um, the guys have done some pretty solid planning and it'll just be keeping a real close eye on the quality and being ready to turn on segregations to cater for you know high screening, high protein grain uh, if we need to. And tonnage overall, what what are you expecting? Uh, so we're looking at a crop around 2.4 million tonnes. The crop just passed um, was our biggest crop ever, so we were able to uh, add a huge tail to last uh, the last season and then some late deliveries which saw us go over the 3.7 million mark. So this one uh, looks to be about 2.4, you know, probably around about 30% less than we received last year. There's, some, there's definitely some really solid crop, uh, but we've got the, yeah, we'll definitely see the other end of the scale as well. The Albany port zone is expected to produce around 4 million tonne of grain this season and the Grains Industry Association of WA is due out with its latest crop report tomorrow. Tara Delangraft reporting there and Tara will be in the hot seat tomorrow for the Country Hour and she'll have all the details of that latest crop report on tomorrow's program. I asked how harvest was going at your place and a couple of texts, one from Tom who says harvest is... Well, I won't say what Tom said, but very average. Maybe we can say that. And another text, I wish you could understand that not everyone is harvesting yet. West of the Albany Highway could be two to four weeks away. Thank you for that text and for letting me know. Well, I am in Geraldton and up here, it's one of the earliest starts to harvest that I think we've ever had. I haven't double-checked that record, but... I reckon it would be up there. There's quite a lot of crop coming off. And it's no different at Bill Cowan's place. He farms at Mount Walker, which is about 400 kilometres north of Albany. And unfortunately, he's expecting a below average year. It'll be good to get it out of the way, um, to get it out of the way, because it's not, for us, it's not going to be the, the greatest harvest ever. And, and having said that, We've just probably put together the two best harvests we've ever had in our life. You know, when you when you're looking at that, you know, we can't grumble too much, and and we're probably looking at a just below average, I would think, this year. 
Yeah. Are you expecting anything else from the harvest? Yeah, no, I, I think, look, the yield the yield's going to be below average. Prices are probably fairly strong or a bit above average, so it's not going to, um, you know, we, we're, we're still going to battle to break even. If we If we break even, we will be very happy. Yeah, so you don't usually start this early, do you? No, no. We, we normally we, you know, with canola and barley, we can sometimes be going at the very end of October, but uh, quite often it's at the start of November. So this is probably one of the earliest um, starts we would have had, I think. So why is it so early this year? Oh, just a, a very, very hot and dry finish which is probably why we're looking at, you know, slightly below average. Um, early on in the season, it probably wasn't that bad, but the the finish um, being so hot, dry and windy is what's made it very tough, especially for canola. Yeah, and what have you heard from other farmers in your surrounding areas? Are they starting as well? Are they in a similar position? Yeah, a lot of other people are about to start or have started. I, I'm, I think... Like further east and uh, and north, will uh, of us is going to all be going. And um, I noticed some people between Narrabeen and Bruce Rock were going. I had heard they were they started last week and and had run into a little bit of moisture problems. There's there's areas just you know as you go south from us and and west, the areas are probably going to be pretty average or might even be better than average. But it's it's to the east and north of, of where we are is that it's, it's probably not that good. It's probably well below average. Mount Walker farmer Bill Cowan just updating Sophie Johnson on how harvest is going in his neck of the woods and on his farm. Let me know how it's going at your place. Send me a text 0448 if you've started yet. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Joe Prendergast for the WA Country Hour. Nice to have your company this afternoon. And you might have heard about that fire that's been burning in the Northern Territory for about a month or so now. It's burnt through almost 3 million hectares in the Territory's Barclay. And that's meant the Barclay Highway has been closed a few times. So what, you might say? Well, the Barclay is vital for Northern Australia's freight network. It's the only tarred road connecting the Northern Territory and Queensland. Cam Dummacy is the CEO of the Western Roads Federation, which is WA's uh, road transport industry's peak body. And he says every time the Barclay closes, it causes more problems for the East Kimberley. Look, so we moved some stuff out of the East Kimberley um, towards Queensland uh, and down towards Southern Markets as well in SA. So clearly that's been disrupted and the people in the East Kimberley are already struggling because the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge is out. Uh, we've only got a temporary low-level crossing in place. So the East Kimberley has certainly done it tough and, you know, these Barclay, Barclay Highway fires, they're just making it harder for them. Flooding problems at the start of the year and bushfire problems now. Yeah, look, we liked a bit of variation, don't we? Um, yeah, look, it's just becoming, you know, one of the things we see and we've discussed before is that we're just the increasing numbers of these weather-related disruptions to our freight routes, be it floods, be it the loss of the east-west uh, and north-south railway lines uh, at the start of the year for flooding as well. 
And bushfires. Like, it just seems never-ending sometimes. I see on social media, Cam, you, I guess, almost lamenting the fact that there is no transnational freight route plan when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, what could be done? Yeah, look, so we actually need a national plan. So you go back to when we had the north-south uh, rail link washed out and the road. They're trying to run freight from Adelaide through New South Wales, Western Queensland, back into the Territory. We also lost the, uh, the freight routes through the Kimberley at the same time. So even though we didn't do it, at one stage we had to run from Perth, theoretically, through the New South Wales up to Queensland, back in through the Territory and then back into East Kimberley. You were getting to the bazaar. We need some sort of plan. We can't obviously harden all of our road routes and our rail routes. You know, that would cost extreme amounts of money. But we're going to need to work with local communities on building up local warehousing stock, buffer stocks in regions. We're going to need alternative freight systems, you know, be it coastal shipping or, you know, upgraded regional air freight routes so we can supply communities when we do get these disruptions. We need a national plan and currently there isn't one. Um, it's a total void. Uh, you recently organised an industry briefing there in WA. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and if anything was achieved? Yeah, so back in late August, we sort of had a sense, you were starting an early indication that things were coming up for a fairly severe season uh, this this summer. So we got some experts in who sort of specialise in it and we briefed not just our industry, but the mining industry, retailers uh, and some local communities about the risks and enabled them to make their own assessments. Some of them have chosen to say, well, it looks like it's going to be a high-risk season. We'll build up local stocks either on site or in the region so that we've got some buffer stock should we get a freight disruption. So it was that sort of early advice so they could actually take action. And when you say build up stock... I mean, what sort of commodities are we talking about here? Oh, look, it could be anything from dry food, fuel reserves, uh, things like that that we transport in. What's happened is over time we've become so used to just-in-time delivery of essentially you know, completely efficient freight systems um, that we've just gone, oh, we don't need to keep stock in the warehouse or we'll back away and get rid of it because uh, that costs money. So as a result of that, whenever we get a disruption, there's no fat in the system locally or within a company area to sort of see them through a disruption. And then that immediately puts the pressure on the transport industry to try and work out a solution, which puts undue pressure on the truck drivers and the transport company. Cam Dumasee, the CEO of the Western Roads Federation, speaking to Matt Bran. If you're wondering, the Barclay Highway is currently open. This week on Landline... Australia doesn't have lumpy skin disease, but it's seriously hampering our cattle trade with Indonesia. Anything that has skin marks is not getting onto a vessel. And supporting Australian farmers with microwave popcorn. We can produce tens of thousands in a day if needed. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It does sound like that lumpy skin disease segment could be well worth watching on Sunday. Australia has never had a case of lumpy skin disease, yet 
It seems to be causing some pretty major disruptions to our cattle trade with Indonesia. Exporters are saying the tough new regulations are resulting in up to 40% of cattle from northern stations being rejected because of skin marks. But it does sound like Australia is now a bit better prepared for an LSD outbreak if the disease does actually find its way here into the country. After hearing concerns raised by vets across northern Australia a month ago, the federal government has managed to secure 300,000 doses of lumpy skin disease vaccine for use on cattle in the event of an outbreak. Dr Chris Parker is the National Preparedness Coordinator for the Federal Department of Agriculture and he says it's always best to prepare for the worst-case scenario. So Minister Watt announced earlier this week uh, that we'd secured a vaccine supply. Um, That's 300,000 doses initially. That's uh, that's on top of also having a permit to use that through the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority. So essentially it means that we have vaccine there, ready to use, that is registered for use in Australia, all of which is an important part of any preparedness activities. Mm -hmm. And as well, something that was mentioned too and has been spoken about by a couple of speakers, um, thousands of cattle getting rejected from ships for skin blemishes, certain things. You mentioned that you'd be talking to some international authorities next week about those kinds of threats what will you be walking them through about what to look for so as part of our efforts to uh, resolve some of the challenges we've had in the trade recently with Indonesia um, we have a delegation of Indonesian officials arriving next week and we'll be talking those Indonesian officials through um, the fact that we are free of lumpy skin disease um, however, we do are aware, or all of us are aware, that you do see some skin lesions in cattle caused by a range of things, but not LSD. So as part of their visit, they'll be uh, witnessing us uh, testing and bleeding cattle, and they'll also will take the opportunity to run them through a whole range of things around skin lesions, pictures of them, reasons for them, those sorts of things to develop that trust that we need in a trusted trading partner. Dr Chris Parker, he's the National LSD FMD Preparedness Coordinator for the Department of Agriculture. He was speaking to our Broome reporter, Hannah Murphy. We did ask the department for more details on that meeting with Indonesian delegates and we've just received a statement which says... This visit is an opportunity for Australia to showcase our robust export regulatory system and demonstrate that Australia continues to be free of lumpy skin disease. The delegation will be visiting seven registered establishments affected by the recent restrictions and visiting laboratory facilities in northern Australia. 29 to 1, let's head to the newsroom. Good afternoon, Jonathan Beale. Good afternoon, Joe. A 38-year-old Chinese national has been sentenced in a Perth court to three years jail for her role in one of Australia's largest drug busts. Chen Chen Hu was charged in January over the discovery of more than $2 million in cash. Police say was linked to a Mexican drug cartel. She pleaded guilty in April to a charge of money laundering. A parliamentary committee examining options for survivors of institutional child sexual abuse seeking justice 
is expected to release an interim report. The chair of the committee, David Honey, has told Parliament the inquiry is expected to be finished next year, but he says there'll be an interim report which would focus on recommendations to improve the resolution of claims for compensation. And Bureau of Statistics figures show Australia's unemployment rate fell from 3.7% in August to 3.6% in September, largely because the number of Australians looking for work dropped. The participation rate dropped from 67% in August to 66.7% in September, pushing the overall unemployment figure lower. The Bureau estimates that just 6,700 jobs were created last month. More news, Joe, at one. Jonathan, thank you. We were talking earlier in the program about the amount of grain that's come into the system so far this harvest. A lot of people making an early start to the season and I think that'll mean a pretty early finish, particularly up in the northern ag region. Some fairly light crops. Kim from Una has texted in. Uh, They're harvesting wheat and it's very average, going about half a tonne to a tonne at its best. Thank you for that text, Kim. Uh, let me know how it's going at your place. The text number is 0448922604. And if you are harvesting, you probably just want to get on with it. And that will mean that the weather will be uh, pretty important over the next few weeks. Angeline Prasad is from the Bureau of Meteorology. How are things looking in the Southwest Land Division, Angeline? Good afternoon, Joe. Um, I think um, we can safely say that we're looking at um, more of a uh, summer-type pattern developing across uh, across much of WA currently. Today, uh, just some cloud cover across the southern parts of the southwest land division and maybe just the odd light shower on the south coast. However, it is going to be a, a, a warm to a, a hot uh, finish to the week as the west coast starts to develop again today. It's not going to be as hot as what we experienced uh, on Monday and Tuesday earlier in the week, but suddenly that West Coast trough will uh, cause uh, a warming trend over the next couple of days as we head into the weekend. The weekend is uh, looking interesting for the Southwest Land Division. As as that West Coast trough moves inland ahead of a weak cold front on Saturday, it's uh, likely to generate uh, some dry thunderstorms in the area southwest of about northern to Lake Grace to about um, uh, uh, Brema Bay. I'm not expecting much rainfall through uh, through those areas southwest of that line. It's going to be high-based thunderstorms. Uh, so the main risk on Saturday in those areas will be dry lightning. If there is rainfall, it is generally going to be less than 0.5 millimetres. Sunday is uh, looking a bit more interesting, and there's a fair amount of uncertainty what that uh, trough will do in terms of the extent of thunderstorms um, and what, how much rain uh, the, the cold front will bring. The south coast is suddenly looking wet, and maybe the great southern areas might see rainfall less than two millimetres. The thunderstorm areas will shift eastwards, um, and maybe we'll see some dry thunderstorms through the uh, gold fields. Uh, it'll be a bit more moist uh, through the Esperance region. But suddenly, Sunday is looking a bit more interesting in terms of getting some rain uh, through those uh, far southern parts of the southwest land division. It is going to be a mild start to next next week as a uh, as a firm ridge develops, but we see a warming trend quickly return around middle of next week. So it is going to get warm to hot again uh, rather quickly through the southwest land division second half of next week.
And how's the north going? Well, um, those hot to very hot temperatures continue across the north and eastern parts of the state. Uh, it is also very dry. Things are looking a bit promising, though, at least for coastal Kimberley this weekend. We have got a, a trough moving inland. It's it's a fairly weak trough. The the windy conditions that we saw earlier in the week is uh, has eased off. So lighter winds, uh, at least for the Kimberley, uh, heading into the weekend. And with sea breezes becoming prominent, we might start to see one or two afternoon showers and even a thunderstorm uh, closer to the coastal parts of the Kimberley. Uh, the ridge that's affecting the southern parts of the state is directing um, windy and dry southeasterlies or easterlies through the interior and through the Pilbara. So it is going to remain hot to very hot during the day across those areas. Um, I've been looking at the overnight temperatures and through inland areas, it's actually been uh, not that bad. So temperatures are cooling overnight to, to more milder temperatures, um, but the coastal areas uh, across the north uh, are experiencing fairly warm nights. So a bit of a mixed bag across the north, but suddenly we're starting to see a little bit more of the wet pattern, a wet season pattern that we're starting to see. So over the next few weeks, um, showers and thunderstorms that we normally start to see during the wet season will be um, closer to the coast. It's going to be very isolated, but heading into November, suddenly the second half of November might start to see an increase in showers and thunderstorms across the north. Fingers crossed that positive Indian Ocean dipole may be uh, weakening. Angeline, any warnings for us this afternoon? Yes, yeah, so there is a fire weather warning out uh, for the Ashburton coast. So uh, ex- ex- expecting uh, elevated fire dangers there today due to the hot and windy conditions. But uh, uh, generally high fire dangers for the next couple of days as uh, as weather will be fairly quiet. And just the coastal wind warning for the wing, um, Ningaloo coast today, but uh, not expecting. That should weaken tonight, so not expecting any marine wind warnings for the next couple of days as well. Thanks, Angeline. And in the past 24 hours, nowhere in WA got any rain at all. So we've sacked Richard for today. No rain over the past 24 hours. We were talking earlier in the program about the fires in the Northern Territory and how that's affecting the Barclay Highway, which is a pretty vital transport link in the north. And Cam Dimacy from Western Roads was saying how the um, infrastructure and the road infrastructure in the north is pretty vulnerable. A text in from Mike saying the $350 billion being spent on submarines should be redirected on a national highway system. That is the sort of nation building that we need. Thank you for that text, Mike. And I've been asking how harvest has been going at your place. If you are in the paddock already, let me know. Send me a text. 0448 922 is the text line. Well, a Dan Darrigan farm worker is recovering in hospital after getting his leg stuck in a potato harvester yesterday. Josh McCallan suffered some deep cuts to his thigh and had to be airlifted to Perth for emergency surgery. Samantha Porter is Josh's partner and she says he's okay, but it could have been so much worse. Samantha and Josh live on the farm and Samantha got a phone call yesterday morning to say there had been an accident. And when she raced out to the paddock, what she saw was pretty confronting. I couldn't hear him. There was no noise. He wasn't crying. He wasn't screaming. Like if I was in that position, I would have uh, would have had needed earplugs. Hmm. Like he just looked like he was in so much pain. 
Um, so when you got yeah. there, his you could see him and you could see his leg. What had happened? I could see his leg. I couldn't see him. He was actually sort of in sort of an enclosed bit. Like he'd gone, he'd sort of slipped down um, and I couldn't see his head. And, yeah, I sort of got there and sort of, you know, asked what's going on and they said, we don't know, Josh is stuck. Um, he slipped into the harvester and that's that's all I knew. And so what were they doing in the paddock? So, so they were digging them um, up. It's sort of a, a machine that sort of bullnoses into the dirt a little bit and while the tractor's sort of rolling, it... Um, the conveyor belt sort of digs up the dirt, pulls the potatoes up, shakes the dirt off, um, and sort of rolls all the potatoes into the back where there's a couple of people standing, sort of taking all the rocks and stuff out. So what actually happened? How did he get to be stuck in there? Uh, he was in the back. It got, um, from what he said, because um, I did ask him while he was stuck in there, um, I said, what's happened? And he was like, oh, well, obviously I'm stuck. I'm like, well, I can see that. <laughs> and he's like, um, it, was, it got blocked or jammed, so it wasn't pulling the potatoes in like it should be. Um, and there was weeds sort of all where he was pulled in. Um, so he was just sort of standing on the edge trying to kick it out and just loosen it so it could suck it in and, you know, continue pulling potatoes out. No, I'm not sure whether it was running or not, um, but he said, yeah, it just grabbed him and just pulled him in. Was someone there to, to actually turn it off so it yeah. stopped pulling him yeah. in? there were a few workers in there. So it must have been parked up because they had the door open and Lyle, one of the workers, was standing on the outside of where Josh was and Josh was on the inside. Um, and he, he must have seen him go down and obviously yell and he turned that tractor off straight away. And if he hadn't have done that, it would have been a, like so much worse than what it was. Like his quick thinking saved his leg and possibly his life. Wow. How long was he in there for before they were able to, to get him out and get him to help? Before I got there, he would have been in there for about maybe an hour. They had to wait for the helicopters to come in. So they were devising a plan to get him out, what's the best way to go that they can get him out without um, causing any more damage to him, um, the safest way to get him out, um, waiting for the helicopter to land. Because as soon as they release that pressure, um, there's a chance that his body will go into shock. Mm -hmm. So they had to wait for the helicopter to be there to get him out as soon as possible. That just must have been excruciating for him being in there yeah. for, for that amount of time with you, with yeah. his leg cut and stuck. Yeah. Who were the people that were helping? They were all volunteers. Yeah. And One... I'm so grateful to them all for getting him out safe. Mm. It could have ended a lot worse. Yeah, yeah. And once he uh, was uh, freed from the harvester, he was on that chopper and, and off to Perth. How is he now and, and what's the past 12 hours or so contained for him? He, he's still groggy. Um, he, once he was on the chopper, he was down in Perth within half an hour at Royal Perth. Um, basically straight in, they got x-rays done, no broken or crushed bones, thank goodness. Um, surgery, they've had to remove some muscle, cut 
his legs sort of to relieve the pressure because of how swollen it got. Um, and he's got another surgery tomorrow um, just to make sure that muscle isn't going to continue to die. Is there any danger of him losing that leg? No. As far That's as good. I know, no, there's been no talk of it. He may lose the muscle up the top in a thigh, um, but that's it. And how you know, he, he could have lost his leg, but he's lost, you know, he's going to lose some muscle. That's nothing. Mm. How's he feeling? He He's upset with himself, you know, just saying he should have concentrated more because like, he does it all the time. And, you know, when you do something so repetitively, you, you just get a little bit, you know, lose concentration. And it was just that, you know, that one second lapse in concentration. And it, yeah, it just must, he don't know what happened, but it just must have just pulled him in. What's Josh's recovery time frame looking like? It could be anywhere from six weeks to six months. Just depending on what happens with the... the uh... Depending on how his muscle goes, yeah. Yeah, okay. And what's his thoughts and what are your thoughts about him going back to work? Oh, we're all for it. You know, accidents happen. Um, they ha- like You could be in an office and fall off your desk and hit your head, you know, and get a head injury. You know, being at work and especially in the farming industry... Um, it, it can be dangerous. You've just got to be more aware and more vigilant on what you're doing. And just because it's a repetitive thing and you do it all the time doesn't mean you should, you know, relax doing it. Harvest is coming up. So if any farmers are listening, just because you do it all the time doesn't mean you won't get hurt. You know, just be aware of what happens. Some pretty good advice there. That's Samantha Porter, her husband, her partner, sorry, Josh, was injured in a farm accident yesterday. And you could hear a couple of kids in the background there. The couple have four children and Samantha was saying they love living on the farm and it's been their home for the past couple of years. And we wish Josh a speedy recovery. Well, the northwest Queensland town of Mount Isa is coming to terms with the fact that its big underground copper mine will shut in 2025. The mine is owned by Glencore, which employs 1,200 people in a town of about 20,000. Emily Dobson is an ABC reporter based at Mount Isa. This mine is the heart of town. The entire community has really been built around it, walking down the streets. There's no way you could miss it. It's um, it's right in the heart of town, be it the stacks that come into line 20Ks outside of town. That's what really marks it on the horizon for you or the plume of smoke that fills <laughs> fills over the town. It's it's really a, a key part and everyone, you know, it's a five-minute drive to work for most people. So it's, I, I, that's the best way I can describe it, putting into context just how close it is to everything. Glencore's Chief Operating Officer is Sam um, Strommeyer, sorry, who says, unfortunately, it's impossible to extend the life of the project because it's not economically viable to mine the remaining mineral resources. So we're talking about our underground cop operations, uh, Enterprise, X41 and the Black Rock Cave and our copper concentrator as well coming to an end in the second half of, of 2025. And it's really the, the culmination of a huge amount of work that's been going on over the last few years. We've actually been able to extend the life of the, the COP operations probably about, about six years. But we're really now 
come to the point with our detailed planning through our life of asset planning and our budget planning. And we have a very good detail now around when, when the COP operations will, will come to a close. And it's almost two years um, in, into the future. So we really what we're trying to do is give our, our people and the community of Mount Isa as much time as possible to start this transition to what mining looks like in Mount Isa post, post the MOC operations. Why this date, the second half of 2025? We've been doing lots of studies over, over many years trying to look for ways to extend the copper operations. And we've actually been you know, really successful in extending it you know, more, more than six years past what we thought was possible previously. But we're now at the point where we've done the detailed work around our life of asset planning and we've really come to the the end of its life in you know July 2025. MICO is getting very deep. We're right at the extremities of the ore body. The ore that we're mining, its copper grades are, are quite low and it's barely covering the costs of, of extraction. How many people does this affect? We're anticipating that this will be affecting about 1,200 people. That's, that's our, our current workforce for both the underground operations and the copper concentrator. And what will happen with those staff? We're starting the process now, so we don't have the, the details exactly, but the, the process is we're you know, letting our workforce know we're taking people through you know, what's happening and the, and the steps that we'll be going through. And then we'll be starting a very detailed individual process with, with, all, with all of our workforce working through this transition period over the, over the next two years. And really the, the intent is wherever possible to retain people, redeploy people into our significant ongoing operations in, in Mount Isa and really as a, as a last resort looking at any redundancies. 1,200 people, is that inclusive of contractors and suppliers? Inclusive of our own, our own employees and contractors. That excludes uh, suppliers. Glenn Kors, Chief Operating Officer, Sam Stramaya. Um, he manages the zinc assets in Australia. And today the Queensland Government has announced it's stepping in with financial support for those who could be affected by the closure of the mine. And it's also reminded the company of its obligation to not only rehabilitate the mine site after its closure in 2025, but also help the community transition. But how are the locals feeling? Because a lot of the workers at that mine are not FIFO. They're locals who have invested in the real estate industry and are raising their families in Mount Isa. Been here 11 years. I'm thinking there will be a little bit of a reduction with the town, but I don't think it's going to hurt overall. There's still zinc and there's still lead. There's other companies out there that may come along and say, well, we'll take it over. Okay. I worked in the mines for about five years in the 80s, but born and bred um, Mount Isa in sort of south of here. But man, I've been in my city all my life. You know, we know a lot of people in the mines and working in the mines and bosses in the mines. And, they've, um, you know, we've sort of always knew it was probably on the, on the cards. How is this going to impact your business? You're in the, they're in the real estate industry. What do you see this? Uh... Oh, I think it'll knock us around a little bit for 12 months. Our phones didn't stop at 11 o'clock last night and started again at 6 o'clock this morning. And what I've, we've told everyone this morning is just cool your heels until the um, decision is a little bit more talked about. Anyone who panics is I don't think it's the right way to go. Long term I think that still Mount Isa is going to be here and it'll be still strong. 
Some of the, th- the thoughts from Mount Isa locals about the news that the town's underground copper mine will close in the middle of 2025 and Glencore's Lady Loretta Zinc Mine, which is a fly-in, fly-out operation 140 kilometres northwest of Mount Isa, will also close in 2025. But it's George Fisher zinc-lead silver mine a uh, zinc lead concentrator and a lead smelter in Mount Isa, as well as the copper refinery in Townsville. They'll all continue to operate. Eight to one. Well, the Australian gold price hit an all-time record high overnight. An ounce of gold this morning would have cost you $3,092. That beats the previous record set just a week ago and this recent price spike is being put down to conflicts between Israel and Palestine with investors flocking to gold as a safe haven for their finances and that price rise has seen the value of WA-based gold miners rally in the markets. Northern Star's share price rose 4% this morning and Northern Star owns the super pit in Kalgoorlie. Telstra hopes new automatic transfer units can solve the problem of power outages and communication breakdowns during bushfires and other emergencies. This was mentioned on yesterday's program because many rural communities find when they need communication the most, it often goes missing. But Telstra's Chris Mark says they're doing their best to address the problem and these automatic transfer units have been installed already in some WA towns. We've got lots of infrastructure across Australia and in the West, but for us, you know, mains power is so essential to keep it running. So we look, we're really trying to tackle this sort of potential loss of power in three ways. One of which is a new device called an automatic transfer unit. And all it does is it makes it much easier to install a backup generator at certain sites. So it just enables us to proactively put a generator in place if we know a fire is coming or a disaster is coming. But also, too, if it's a sudden impact or outage, you know, it enables us to deliver the generator to the site faster and get it up and running and helping restore communications. Okay, so the, the, the pre-infrastructure, if you like, is already there encouraging and cooling. So if disaster does strike, it's a quicker process to get a generator physically there to get the continuation of telecommunications. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. And I think, too, look, I'd just like to say, look, all of our sites have battery backup. So they already have, you know, several hours of battery backup. Things like these automatic transfer units and generators, they just help add that additional level of backup if the outages are for, you know, more than a few hours. Okay, so this is in place now in Corrigan mm-hmm. and, and Coolan. How, I mean, these are pretty remote places. If you do get a, a fire there, how long can it take to actually get out there to get the generator there to keep the, the power on? It depends. Obviously, you know, safety is really important for us. And, you know, if the local fire authority or police, you know, won't let us into an area, then that, that can delay us. But the idea is that we are looking to have, have this infrastructure in place at those exchanges, which are the important part of the connectivity for us. And we can then, you know, get them up and running. But what I would say as well is we've also, having built a, a batch of new high capacity trailer mounted generators, and we're going to have three of those located in in the great southern area, uh, Meriden, Jinjin and Narijin, they'll be able to move around to various sites. So if we do have other outages due to disasters or loss of mains power, then that'll help us to keep sites up and running uh, for longer as well. 
and they're being built in Perth at the moment, and we'll be rolling them out uh, in the next few weeks into these communities. Okay, now these um, ATUs, these automatic transfer units, if you mm-hmm. do need to go out to places like Corrigan and Coolan, are they are these devices coming from Perth to those places? No, so the ATUs are a piece of equipment that's already installed on the side of the exchange. So that's been done. But I mean, the infrastructure, so if, once there's a fire, if you need to get out to these places, would those people uh, even be coming from within WA? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, mm. they'll, be, they'll be local. So for us, this, this infrastructure allows us to bring a generator to that site and get up and running much faster. Now, in, we expect that will primarily be done by... Uh, a Telstra employee or one of our power contractors, but it does have the capacity for us to train up third parties like council people or other locals that may have a, a suitable generator that could be connected up. And that's something we'll work through uh, with with local people. Telstra Public Affairs Manager Chris Marks speaking to Tim wong And if you'd like to read more on this story, just search ABC Great Southern and the story is on their homepage Three minutes to one, there was a cattle sale at Mount Barker today. Tracy Kilner has been there keeping an eye on proceedings. Hi, Tracy. How did it go? Hi, Joe. Numbers were down for a total yarding of 1,294 mixed quality cattle. The prices trended down on all categories with the feeder buyers and live exports selective on weights and types. Grown cattle eased with processor demand. Trade steers sold up to 208 cents and the heavy cows topped at 148 cents a kilo. Wiener steers made from 212 to 342 cents and the Wiener heifers sold from 110 to 230 cents a kilo. Heavier weight yielding steers made from 198 to 286 cents, while the lighter weight yearlings made up to 326 cents a kilo. Yearling heifers eased, returning from 128 to 238 cents, quality dependent. Grown steers returned 168 to 208 cents. And the grown heifers sold from 150 to 174 cents a kilo. Heavy cows eased 10 cents, selling from 116 to 148 cents, averaging 130 cents a kilo. And the heavy bulls sold up to 136 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you. Before you go, what was the weather like in Mount Barker today? Um, beautiful and cool down here today. Oh, well, enjoy. Sounds like nice weather for a cattle sale. Tracy, thank you for that. Thank you. I've been asking how harvest has been going at your place. Quick text from Damien uh, at Binu. He says it's a pretty average season here, but the flow-on effect is huge. Contract grain carters have been sitting, have trucks sitting idle or have to go elsewhere for work. So the flow-on effect is pretty big from the poor season that we're having, particularly north of Geraldton. Thank you for that text, Damien. Hello, I'm Annie Guest. Join me for The World Today. Aid hopes for Gaza in the wake of US President Joe Biden's visit to the Middle East. The Queensland Liberal National Party dumps its support for a state treaty in the wake of the voice referendum. And a new hunt for missing radioactive material, this time in South Australia. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. And we are fast approaching one o'clock. I was just having a look on the ABC Rural Facebook page and there is an interesting article on there which talking about the new technology that's coming onto the market aimed at farmers and it's all about getting people to improve sustainability and even prove sustainable practices. But there are some 
pretty valid questions about what is genuinely useful and what actually works in the bush. So worth checking that story out on the ABC Rural Facebook page. News time now. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.